0: Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Found Consulting.
1: Well, welcome, Karen. Good to see you. Thank you. We've uh, just been chatting about coming back, you know, and as we look around and today there's three of us and the other day there was 20 of us. It's Been very interesting, hasn't it? Watching how the deliberate flexibility we had before is changing to a much more individualized approach to doing it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I, I found that certainly even through moving, Andrew, over the last week and you know, really you know, setting up rooms and thinking, look, where is a, an ideal or an optimal place for me to work in the home? And then comes the question, like, are there when's my optimal time of the day um, to do my work or different types of work as well? And I think there's Many of you are probably thinking about this already, and certainly organisations in terms of we talk about hybrid setups and you know flexibility and autonomy. But in practicality, you know, what kind of conversations are we having at the moment to to set that up and bring that to life?
1: Yeah, we had a very we had a, quite a strong flexibility program before, which allocated days people worked and didn't work. But I think Karen, what we've all noticed is we work at different times better. And when you look at the survey we put around for yoga and Pilates and the various exercise programs, they're now throughout the day. And what it identifies is there's times people need a break. I think for us, probably the learning is the flexibility. We'll have the same amount of hours and flexibility here and not here post COVID. But what we'll what we'll see is a much better leadership and leadership group saying well, when do you work best, Karen? Mm-hmm. When do I need this work done? And we'll start looking at outputs rather than that old method of working we had before, which was around the hours you had to be at work Mm -hmm. and the hours you had to be at home. I think what we're seeing now is, certainly from you as a leader and for Kim Satiri, conversations around, well, when do people work best and how do we get this, how do we make sure people integrate, how do we make sure they engage with each other, how do we make sure they're happy, you know, doing Mm -hmm. what they're doing? Mm -hmm. But what we've seen in the last four weeks is a growth in our productivity, which is a much more sustainable growth because it's built around happiness. So we, we, you know, at the beginning of lockdown, we had very high productivity and that declined a little bit as people got burnt by it, particularly in the last one. And we had to do all sorts of things like having whiskey nights and stuff like that to engage people and have fun to try and break it up. But it didn't work as well as people seeing each other. Mm. But the learnings about flexibility have been fantastic, but we just have to be much more deliberate about capturing the individual nature of it. So that we integrate our teams better in actually delivering work but creating happiness. Anyway, that's a there's that a good and really interesting discussion we're having. So we're just sharing that with you. I'm sorry, you're probably bored to death by that, but <laughs> the internal workings of us. Actually, we've got a lot on today, a good four or five cases. There's just in mandatory vaccinations, there's been five cases this week. The Victorian Supreme Court matter. The injunction failed when the judge said we're not here to talk about whether vaccines work, we're here to talk about orders, no injunction, whack <laughs> right across the chops. Federal court in Victoria, action brought by the Red Nurses, a new breakaway union, (laughs) again trying to seek the mandatory orders to be chopped off. And again, in the federal court, they told, go away, don't be silly. Just this is about the orders. It's not about whether you were consulted. It's about the orders. It's not an adverse action for the purpose of the injunction, go away. New South Wales, the ambulance drivers went down in New South Wales completely once again when they said mandatory orders comply. Fascinating case of BHP is now before the Fair Work Commission. There's a challenge to the full bench on their the power of their policy because they're not a mandated organization. The powers Mm -hmm. of the policy to mandate. People are suspended without pay, but with an undertaking from BHP, they will pay them if they lose and found the policy is unlawful. Mm -hmm. I think the consensus amongst us all is they will be found to be lawful. But we'll have to wait and see, because that's a really interesting case. Then there's the tearaway crazy case the pizza place that sacked someone from being vaccinated. And Morris Blackburn, who obviously don't have anything better to do, were acting for the are acting for the organization, the person and saying that this is an imputed disability. Anyway. Interesting, interesting times, and we're seeing lots of crazy stuff out there.
0: But having said that, though, consistently, what is clear in terms of those decisions and rulings, are,
1: they're very consistent. Oh, they can—they say, look, we're here to deal with the efficacy of the public health order, not with a bunch of um, sci-fi theories that come off social media. So the stop sexual harassment orders came in on the 11th of November. You've heard me complain about this before, where only a few of the many recommendations were made by the the commission was actually appointed by the government. And I, and I guess this is about as close as we come to legislative misogyny. You know, it's, it's such a boys' club in Canberra. What they've done is they've uh, embedded the definition of sexual harassment in the Fair Work Act and made it serious misconduct. For anyone who knows anything about law, it was always serious misconduct. We didn't need to say it, but nonetheless there's a bit of window dressing to add to that. The interest in new stop order like the bullying orders. How many people have had a bullying order in the last year? There's about a 1,000 run a year for around about, 12 million workers so that shows you how effective the bullying one is it won't be used just remember that when women are sexually harassed the likelihood of them bringing a claim let alone a stop order they're so yeah, they dropped the magic bomb then didn't they <laughs> it's so remote because they're so damaged by it so the stop order is a joke that's all that's happening started that's the whole of what's happened after months and months that's the best they could do without looking at how do we actually prevent sexual harassment?
0: And how we actually do that, Andrew, because you and I did have a conversation about this.
1: You know, well, it's, it's you know, actually an investment in creating fairness and flexibility for women in work and recognising their right to work safely. It's not about adding window dressing to two pieces of legislation. I'm going to move on. I'll, I'll get fired <laughs> up. To... The next case is Diabel and Metro Trains, which you've heard me say before, we have a lot of problems with single single legislative power jurisdictions. You know, the Workers' comp tribunal is is an example of a group of people who know nothing about employment law. Their work commission know nothing about anything else but employment law, and in this case, a person said, filing certificate after certificate of capacity saying, I can't do any job, and then complained bitterly when she was sacked because Metro Trains relied on a certificate of capacity saying, well, we agree with you. She said, but you had to do an IME, and they said, no, no, you, you're telling us you have no. Now, the problem with this decision is they relied on the certificates of capacity in every jurisdiction like Victoria's, Section 508 of the WIC Act in Victoria, says you're not allowed to utilise any workers' compensation documentation for any other purpose other than rehabilitation or return to work. Nobody seemed to raise it in a case which suggests the representation is pretty stupid as well. But the bottom line is... The existing law says, because it's based on safety law and on the law of inherent requirements is, that it is the obligation of the employer to satisfy themselves, not in what a person says, of a person's capacity to work.
0: So the lesson here, Andrew, is that when it comes to inherent requirements, fitness for work, that employers need to have their own uh, they, need evidence.
1: they need to be satisfied because, remember, we don't do stuff to sack people, we do stuff to help people okay mm-hmm. that's where we work from as employers so it's a bad decision it's not to be followed but there'll be a number of people who say you can do it you can't okay i'm only raising it because it is a bad decision all right russian whatmill is a safety case i'm sorry we're going through so many cases but this is a fantastic case and it shows that regulators throughout australia and safety are particularly shooting low to make sure they get convictions now, whatever drives that might be something internal i don't know what it is Rush was a supervisor who was setting up some trenching works at 1.8 meters deep. He knew what the code said, the code of practice. Now remember, the code of practice in WHS states is actual evidence of reasonable practicability. Okay. In Victoria, it is a place you can go for what is reasonably practicable. He ignored that and he also ignored the direction to do it correctly and used a steel plate to hold the trench. Steel plate collapsed, the trench collapsed onto a person and severely injured the person involved. He was charged with with a simple primary duty breach as the supervisor and he got a $10,000 fine or some some Gumby fine. But the fact is, this is actually reckless endangerment because he knew what was right. And in reckless endangerment, when they say you are indifferent to the risk, it doesn't mean that you have to, to be guilty, you have to do nothing. It means indifferent to the risk that you've been advised about, knowing it could cause serious injury or death, and being careless as to what you do. Now, all he had to do was follow the code and the person wouldn't be injured. So this is a guy who should have gone to jail if the regulator was braver, but the regulator wasn't brave and actually shot low. We're going to see changes in this because there will be around trenching, around forklifts, around these sites, there will be an outcry about this case because it is so low and it is so wrong. And, And it's such a bad example of where we should be when people are reckless they know a risk of serious injury or death and they're careless disinterested in that risk and just go and do their own thing so the case doesn't really tell us much except where our regulators brains are at the moment and let's hope they put their brains back in their head in tyson and heiko which is the last case it's judge vaster case now judge Vasta is probably the most appealed judge in australia but i think he got this one wrong heiko was a construction business one of their employees, Tyson, refused to pay CME duties. They said to him, fix this up, go and pay them. It's an EBA site. You've got to do it. He said no. Three days later, he was dismissed. The comments that were made to him during it made him feel pretty terrible and at risk of losing his job. And Vasta said, well, this is clearly coercion under 348 of the Act and fined $60,000 plus seven for hurt and pain. Not sure the penalty's right, but that's not the issue. Even this judge can see this type of behaviour has to be stopped. We're going to see a lot more of this as the ABC starts flexing its muscles because it's a very common thing on CBD sites. There you go. That's the cases. We've raced to get them all through, and I'm sorry just to dump that amount of law on you, but there are some real things to feel a little bit aggrieved about. There's some really dumb decisions that have come out that can easily influence people to doing dumb things. I hope today we've provided a bit of clarity around what is good in that respect. Yeah, it is, Jeff. really frustrated, you know, in such a dangerous place when we're talking about the supervisor stuff, really, really, really hopeless. Today, what Karen and I want to talk about was something a bit different, because we're getting towards the end of the year. In fact, we're four weeks before we're live at the Apollo downstairs. <laughs> so we're having a live presentation, this, week. you're welcome to come along. And I know for the people in New South Wales and other states, I'm sorry about that, but you get breakfast if you're in Victoria and you're here, and if you're not, we want you to share breakfast with us anyway. But we want to have a discussion about something that troubles both of us a little bit, and I've got Karen to do a little bit more after I talk, about where HR and safety managers are finding themselves repeatedly is drawn operationally into fixing problems around behaviour and performance. Now, that's something that HR people spend about half a subject in during their degree, mm. and all their skills are in around building capability developing systems for people to behave at their optimum, to feel safe, good at work, to be skilled in what they do and to support operations in doing it. But increasingly, and it's, and it's also slightly intoxicating, being drawn to operations without accountability is another thing. But what it means now, particularly in such a disrupted society where the operational people have to be so clever and, and engaged, mm-hmm is that HR are being drawn and so is safety into this space of dealing with the people that operations should be dealing with and managing and living with. And part of that is a very old-world construct that existed around what is leadership. And it gave very concrete duty. So HR deals with people. Therefore, it deals with all the structure and the execution of people. Operations has an output, so it focuses on that. Now, that's a theory which was really happily suggested in the 1960s and 70s, but it's well outlived its date, Mm -hmm. but it's destroying the quality of life for our OHS and HR people. They're not doing what they're really good at doing. It's damaging business in a way, and we're seeing it through the case law that's coming through every day. We're seeing it through the conflicts we deal with, where people constantly reach out to safety and HR people and say, well, can you manage this difficult conversation?" And they're doing it because no-one's saying to them, no, 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 that's operations. They know what's happening. They're able to add flesh to the bone. They're able to lead and learn through this process. They're able to be seen as the leaders in difficult times. So I thought I'd just switch over to you, Karen, to look at what are the more modern theories around where HR should be placed and safety in leading to get this much better outcome and what is the outcome they will get through it. So can I go over to you on that?
0: Yep, certainly. So I've got here for you today, many, well, many of you might be familiar with the Cotter's theory, which um, is often referenced around explaining the difference between leadership and, and management. So really where management has is about creating order, consistency and structure, leadership is really much more about creating change, creating movement, inspiring, engaging. So if we look at that as the premise of what the difference is for both, you'll see that when you break it out operationally in terms of in terms of running a team or you know, running a function versus then what HR and safety's role would be in just supporting that, it's quite clear and just depending on what your role is, what you should be doing, how you should be spending your time and your energy would be quite different. But what we're seeing through, for, through years now, I've noticed this, and Andrew, you probably would have noticed also, with HR, we've seen a shift to HR BPs, the word BP being HR business partners or people and, uh, and culture and change. They've been in place for a number of years now. And really, that's a deliberate shift to be able to, to make quite clear that safety and HR, I've put safety into this, it's about value creation, right? Not coming in there to operationalize and execute it for the operational team, if I can term that broadly. So what we, we're still seeing, though, um, through our daily work, Andrew, is that although there is a, a clear shift and, and an appetite to move in that way, what we're still seeing is that our HR people and safety people are still trapped very much
1: in that operational and, space. And the business partner role is a classic one where they become closer to the business outcome and then for start to be operational. Remember, Kotter wrote this only a few years ago. He was the original guy who wrote The Development of Change, The Eight-Step Process, and he realised the world's so disrupted now that actually management of change with a deliberate process Mm -hmm. can't work because change is happening all the time, and so it has to change lives in the leader role by that influence, motivation, and by modelling what is great behaviour and saying, good is this, let's go towards it. And what we've got to see is HR and safety saying, look, creating capability is really important. Creating a safe environment is really important. But operations, these are your jobs. Mm-hmm. You've got to build this capability. I'm happy to help you build the capability, but I'm not going to do it for you. Now, I know I'm speaking the language of nearly everyone who's listening today, but how do you as safety and HR practitioners educate your leadership group to say, I'm not your Band-Aid, I'm not your policeman? <laughs> yeah. Because what I'm doing is taking away your capacity to grow, develop, develop adjust to this constant disruptive world because your operational people are looking at widgets.
0: Oh, totally. everyone's losing, Andrew. I mean, the organisation loses, the people at the front line, the teams, everyone's actual influence, impact, performance is being diluted because you're actually not getting the best out of people. Now, for me, if you look at a safety manager, um, safety professional, HR manager professional, your job is to be able to maximise human capital right safety people your job is to ensure and make sure that you know we are in terms of the safety culture we are safer every day in the way that we work and that with our confidence and that we are safe and our people are safe and the people interact with us and and building and
1: building productive capability and
0: all that that adds to your reputation it adds to culture it's so much more but instead of going up this way we're all focused in, in terms of the, the process and the task as such. And, and you know what,
1: the, the heart of this is, the heart of it, is, and I will stop ranting for sure, <laughs> but the heart of this is that people just aren't courageous and they shun courage. And when faced with conflict, they go and find the person who manages conflict. And the person who manages conflict, let's be really clear about this, the person who manages conflict is the operational person. And what it does is it dilutes the intellect capability and strategic wit mm-hmm. of safety and HR who are actually there about making the business a better business. Yeah. And so instead of the 5% providing a bit of advice and support dealing with conflict, they're spending 50 60 70% dealing with the two worst employees in the organisation.
0: Yeah, they blame each other for it. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> anyway,
1: <the way. laughs> uh, and for the people, and look, these are, you're the people I speak to every day, as we try and navigate around with our leaders and say, no, no, it is actually your job. Yeah. It is your job. So, anyway, so. That's it. You found Karen and I both agree on something for once. Oh, and there we go. I was trying to. You
0: agree with me,
1: right? <laughs> I always <laughs> agree yeah. with you. Yes, it does. It forces you into the weeds. There's absolutely yeah. no doubt. Let's move on. Move on, move on, move on now because I've ranted pretty badly for oh, 20
0: you, minutes. You, you've refrained yourself pretty well, well i did I'm quite impressed. I
1: didn't drop the effort, and that was so close, oh, wasn't it? Yeah. That was magically close. So we're having a case study. There is no word in here that Karen can't say. Oh, God,
0: just leave <laughs> me alone. All right, anyway, so here we go. Mary was a supervisor for the labour hire company Construction Outplacement Workers, Cal. That's a good one, Andrew. Anyway, <laughs> She had been an employee for over 20 years and had won Employee of the Year three times, most recently in 2020. Mary's husband had developed cancer in 2019 and was now in palliative care. She was the sole breadwinner for a family of three children under 15. Dean, one of Cow's labour hire employees, was assisting with the in-store of air conditioning ducting in a multi-storey building on a CBD site. It was common practice across all CBD sites that the builders provided supervision of labour hire employees in their day-to-day function. Mary's obligation as the labour hire provider contact was to induct Dean under the site swims, but she didn't. Dean slipped while on site, but fortunately didn't fall through a void on the third floor where there was a 10-metre drop to a concrete floor. Cal Safety Manager completed a report of the incident. As a result of the investigation, Mary received a show cause letter as to why her employment should not be terminated. Mary attended the disciplinary meeting. She was advised of the outcome of the report and asked why she shouldn't be terminated. Mary explained she had handed Dean over to Fred from Lindleys, who managed the site. Fred always did his own inductions. Mary's boss, Sally, explained that this didn't change her responsibility under safety law and the contract. Mary had been trained annually about these obligations. Sally said it was a golden rule to comply with the swim and they had a zero tolerance for breaches. Mary's employment was terminated summarily.
1: There you go. So over to the pole. There's some tricks in this today. Are yeah. I wasn't driving my car when I rode it this time. That's one of the tricks. I was sitting in the back of an Uber.
0: Oh, it's good. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it was. It was. All right. Very, very good. Thanks. So the first question, Dean was not injured. Was it a breach of safety law when no one was hurt? Well, of course, yes, it was. Clearly not to follow a swims by the owner of a business, so the, by the PCBU or the, the employer in this case, and by their delicate is a breach no matter what a contract says. Remember, safety law sits outside of contract law. It sits outside of custom practice. It is just an obligation to do it. Dean should not have entered the site until he was able to be on the site safely, and in this case, without the appropriate uh, guarding, without him wearing a harness, without doing something, working near a void, there's liability and significant liability that falls on both cows but also lend loose because they were the supervising body at the time. Mm -hmm. So do you see the the reason I'm raising this is actually everybody was in breach of safety. Mm -hmm. And remember, there's no zero-sum game in safety. Everyone can be liable to the the full extent of the law. So here, Mary was personally liable. Why? Because she's reckless. So here's another case of reckless endangerment. Knowing a risk of a person working near a void, she does nothing about it because she thinks Fred's going to do it. That's the carelessness that comes with reckless endangerment. But you'd certainly be charged under Section 23 here of third-person risk that comes involved in, sorry, Section 25, the the breach of another employee. The organisation would definitely be liable and Lend-Lease would definitely be liable, or for primary duty breaches. So the fact that no-one's hurt, as you all correctly pick, is not the issue. The fact that this, and this is the part that I wonder, the risk of injury here was serious injury or death, so it elevates it up into Category 2, in model clauses, reckless endangerment in Victoria. This is one that could have been, if the person had been injured, there would have been charges looking for jail in it in, in most jurisdictions. All right, is the failure to follow swims and induct a new employee for working in heights potentially serious misconduct? Now let's what do we yeah, people said yes? So that's a really good thing. I think, under the definition of serious misconduct, which you go from section 12 in the act to regulation 107. One of the things is the risk of causing injury, okay? Here's a high-level risk of causing injury. So Mary is, under the definition of serious misconduct, done it. The issue really then comes down to but what has Cow done to ensure Mary was doing induction to how, how effective were they? Jeff, absolutely, which goes really into the next question because there is a valid reason, serious misconduct is a valid reason. The next question you come to is the three issues. Was it unjust? Well, no, this was lawfully correct. So it is lawfully serious misconduct. Mm-hmm. Is it unreasonable? Well, potentially it is unreasonable for a whole series of reasons which are set out, and that is there was a practice, and you can see the practice that has emerged, mm-hmm. which is condemnation. Yep. Okay? More importantly, when we drill down on what occurred, she was never presented accurately with what the allegations were against her, so she never had an opportunity to properly respond. There was just a verbal discussion of what was in the report. When she raised issues that goes to what actually occurs on site, they then said, but this is a golden rule. Now, you can't have a golden rule where you condone behaviour. Mm-hmm. The golden rule has no effect at all, okay. okay? When you have a golden rule, it is we do not tolerate it under any circumstances. Absolutely. And as Jeff has just raised earlier, we go through a process of systems analysis to satisfy us that people are doing the right thing every time. And education once a year is not a measure of it. That's
0: right. And so all the incidents are similar or like that or of critical nature like that that have been dealt with previously and is there a, you know, a consistency around how we manage that as well. So That's right. Yeah,
1: it's context. But we, then we come to the last part, which is there is a subjective element in the word harsh which looks at the personal circumstances of the person. Sole breadwinner, husband dying, perfect work record, top person, makes a mistake. Dreadful mistake, but a mistake that's made, that's been borne by practice, supported by the organisation tacitly, because the constructive knowledge of that is something the organisation in employment law can't walk away from. Mm -hmm. In every other state but Victoria, they've been breached the due diligence obligations. In Victoria, because there is a subjective test of due diligence under Section 144, the organisation would have to know that Mary and other supervisors didn't do that. But the answer is, I'm pretty sure if it's happening everywhere, people above Mary are aware it's not occurring too. So the answer is she would be successful in a being reinstated because there is no barrier to a reinstatement here, and she would win her unfair dismissal claim because it was unquestionably harsh. Okay. Now that goes back to the safety issue because when I just want to return to the safety issue. We're an organization fails to have a system. What are the six elements of a system? First of all, they have to have a safety plan which looks at risk. Second, in respect of that plan, they must develop a process that implements and has integrity around that plan. Third, there must be training which is competency-based that doesn't. Fourth, there must be supervision to satisfy themselves that the plan, the process and the training are effective, ongoing and done. They must have a monitoring system that sits beneath it to ensure that is occurring. And then they must have a reporting process that captures that information in an orderly way. Now, that's what a safety system is. There is no safety system here. The most serious type of breach for a primary duty breach is a systems breach.
0: Absolutely. So what this incident would um, expose is how flawed the
1: system is. And that's why she'd be reinstated. Mm. So that would put the sword to their issue of we have have zero tolerance and what it would demonstrate to the organisation. Now, the problem with the systems breach is it exposes the officers of the organisation should a similar breach go to personal liability. Yeah. So the reason this case was a pretty simple case and only three questions it was really to show you what happens when you get condemnation and safety, what is the level of risk and how that plays out then in employment law. So there you go, guys. We've got 34 seconds to go. You're going to be getting the invites to the live production next week okay and we're really looking forward to that and yep. there'll be another animal in the poll <laughs> absolutely no doubt i'm trying to get a three, word, in, but three, I don't three
0: know. worded or three lettered animal yeah, yeah aardvark's
1: always going to be difficult thank you very much for coming along great to catch up again karen yeah you too see, see, see everyone. you guys bye, bye. bye.